Welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about the history of publicly available transportation, public spaces, the ways we get around, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. I'm your host, Cheryl Gross-Glazer. Here in this episode, we look at the gondolas of Medellin, Colombia. And before we talk about that, we will do our moment in equity. Now, this episode is really a lesson in a holistic approach to uh, achieving equity. But here in our moment in equity, we're just going to look very briefly at wealth inequality and how different countries rank. So first, uh, let's define what we mean. Uh, Wealth and income are not exactly the same thing, and wealth does not track exactly with income. Nevertheless, if you read anything in this about these um, these two topics, they're often used as synonyms. So you have to be careful when, when you're reading about them. So although higher income makes it easier to accumulate wealth, wealth accompli- encompasses more than income. It includes savings, investment, uh, earnings, uh, and the value of whatever you're holding at the present time, values which might change, right? Like stock values or real estate values. Um, So just because you have a lot of wealth today, it doesn't mean that that value will stay the same even if you own exactly the same things you did yesterday. Uh, Something else that affects wealth is uh, how much debt you or a country might have or the lack of debt. So wealth, in a way, reflects financial happenings, if you will, over time and across types, whereas income looks to one uh, specific source of wealth, which are earnings, and what money is being earned now or during this year. So the decrease in wealth equality in the U.S. since the 1980s has been pretty stark. We're basically now in the equivalent of a pre-Union Gilded Age in terms of wealth disparities. The country that we're visiting today, Colombia, uh, is even more unequal, if you will, if that's the way uh, you can say, say it. There's grave differences between the top and the bottom. In terms of the top 10 for wealth inequality, we're talking about uh, all of them being countries in Africa and then Brazil. So you can see when you look at that top 10 and even if you go down into the top 20, the lingering disparities of colonialism uh, have extended far out in time after those occupying forces and those wealthy elites have departed for their home country. The highest levels of equality, on the other hand, uh, are found in smaller and less overall wealthy countries of Europe. So, for example, the top 10 includes such countries as Slovenia, the Czech Republic, the Ukraine, Norway, Belgium, and Finland. So that kind of gives you an idea. Um, But uh, an exception to that rule in the top 10 is the United Arab Emirates. And now to our episode, Medellin, Colombia, and its 
gondolas. So uh, before we look at the Medellin, before we look at its gondolas, we're going to talk a little geography, just in case you are like me and you did not receive a spectacular geography uh, education. Mm. I am drinking my Zeke's coffee this morning, which I have to admit I haven't done lately because I've been going to a local place, which is very nice. I'll tell you about it later in the episode. Yummy. Okay. So Medellin is located in the country of Colombia, which is itself situated in the northwest quadrant, if you will, of South America. Colombia borders Brazil, Venezuela, Peru, Ecuador, and Panama. Uh, this nation sits in kind of a special spot. It sits at the top of the continent, uh, and it borders both uh, the Pacific Ocean and uh, the Caribbean. So I associate the Caribbean more with the Atlantic, but so it's kind of a special, excuse me, special spot. So the city of Medellin is nowhere near the Caribbean. <laughs> It is located in the western quarter of Colombia, roughly in the middle from north to south, and not on the Pacific Ocean either. Uh, it's uh, it's in a river valley, and then the city expanded up into the steep mountainous hillsides that surround the valley. It is the capital of a state in Colombia, but not the nation's capital. So Medellin is compared by Britannica, formerly Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, as akin to Manchester, England, or I would say as an American to Detroit, and in any case, an industrial city. The Spanish discovered the valley and its indigenous inhabitants in the 1540s, and the Spanish then established a town here in 1616. But the name Medellin did not appear until 1675. There's not much information easily found about this dichotomy and what happened. There's some, and we're not going to focus on that. So one rabbit hole avoided, but there are sources in the show notes in case you want to go down that one. So this is a mining town. It's not a large place. It's one spot in Spain's vast empire in South America. Uh, the city grew to be a center of industry, auto manufacturing, chemicals, textiles, and trade in coffee. But in contrast to places like Cartagena, Colombia, or Quito, Ecuador, very little survives of the Spanish colonial buildings and footprint. And it wasn't built to be that kind of beautiful colonial city that those others were were built to be. It's it's a mining town, and then it it. It transitions over time. So Medellin's industrial focus also differs from uh, much of the rest of Colombia. You think Colombia, you think lush, uh, you think uh, places that are centered on agriculture or on coastal riches and beauty and tourism. So, so quite different. And this explosive growth did not happen gradually. It actually came about in the early 20th century 
And so you may ask, what transformed Medellin from this mining town into a large industrial city? And the answer is the railroad, with its provision of relatively fast and reliable transportation. And hence the city's advantage and growth in, in importance as a commercial market for the coffee trade. In recent decades, uh, Medellin has undergone another transformation, uh, truly astounding. Um, it went from having a reputation and a reality as a murder capital and the center of the Columbia, Colombian gang drug cartels to being a reasonably safe, tourist-friendly destination and even a home for expatriates. So what happened? We're going to, you know, even though we're talking about the gondolas, we're really going to go into uh, what happened because it's, it's central. It's central to the story of the gondolas as well as the city. So in 1993, so it's uh, 30 years ago, there was a kingpin, think Mafia Don, the notorious Pablo Escobar, who had an iron grip, if you will, on uh, the drug trade, quite, quite the violent kingpin. He was killed. Um, and you would say, okay, opportunity. But no, you know, he, he was the tyrant, right? So there, were, there was some predictability. There was some um, level of knowing what, what one could do or not do, right? There was one set of rules, one personality, no matter how arbitrary that personality could be, that there was one. Now he's killed and the crime and danger only escalated, going from bad to worse because Medellin now had a power vacuum. On the other hand, we no longer had a situation where one person or a single group possessed an iron grip on the city. So there's both possibility for things to improve, but also possibility for things to uh, get much worse. Now, unlike many places where high crime rates are fought mainly or only with police or army crackdowns, and random and lengthy imprisonment, thus scaring people into avoiding any association with criminal activity, Medellin ultimately took a vastly different approach. But this took uh, time. But when they did, instead of treating crime and the terror of the gangs solely as an isolated problem of misbehaving individuals or groups, the city created physical access to jobs and to the rest of the city for those neighborhoods and residents most affected by the terrible reality of murders, robberies, and other criminal activity. So think of it, within 30 years, Medellin creates a public transportation system. This includes, but goes beyond the gondolas. Now that might be imaginable in certain places in Asia, in Europe, perhaps in the UK, but certainly not presently in the United States, where transportation planning and pro project implementation uh, even for a small project, can take decades. So it's it's truly an astounding achievement. So we have Escobar's death in 1993. 
dangerous, violent, poverty-stricken barrios, uh, or na- being a word for neighborhood, in in parts of Medellin that go up the mountains, and are not, and these these barrios are not connected to public transportation at the time. So violent was the reality in these barrios that police would not enter them, and people were feared to leave their homes at night. Residents, if they chose to visit or to commute into the center of the city to hold jobs there, could expect travel times upwards of two hours. So just like residents of poor neighborhoods in other countries, neighbors here didn't believe it when promises started to be made or possible projects were mentioned. Uh, They suffered in the early years of the 2000s with military crackdowns perpetrated to stop the societal hemorrhaging of the uh, of the violence. So think those first 10 years after Escobar's death. And from a 2008 Smithsonian Magazine article, I quote, peace agreements with illegal armed groups came about in late 2003 through a demobilization process that gave amnesty to most combatants who laid down their arms. So that almost reminds me of South Africa after apartheid. There's a recognition that there's been a lot of violence. A lot of uh, different factors go into whether someone becomes part of that. Sometimes there's duress, right? So there's an amnesty. Okay, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card, basically. That's not going to be... Imprisonment is not going to be our focus. Murders in the city of about 2 million plunged from a high in 1991 of 6,349 to 653 in 2007. So that's a 90% decrease. That's, you know, just astounding. And that's within, you know, these years, uh, 1991 to 2000, that, that goes beyond what we're talking about specifically, but encompasses those years. So the powers that be realized that crackdowns alone, um, they could stop the violence while they remain in place. You know, those kind of measures. But unless you address underlying problems, there's not going to be any long-lasting change. So here, realize nobody's talking about gentrification. Nobody's talking about displacement of current residents. So this is similar to what we found in the U.S. in the mid-1960s when problems in a neighborhood or a city become so serious, the, the goal is to stop the hemorrhaging and to help the current inhabitants. And no one really starts being concerned about um, increasing property values and displacement. So let's go back again to 1993, shortly before Escobar's death, Government staff began engaging uh, in organized conversations with with current residents of some of these neighborhoods. So not public outreach in the usual sense of, here's our solution, and we're going to hold a meeting and hear what you think. Not public outreach in terms of having 300 people sitting and listening to so-called experts. These are just conversations in, in these neighborhoods. 
going into neighborhoods and asking people who live there, poor people, what they they think. What do they think is needed for their city to function and their neighborhoods to function? What are their thoughts about the multiple layers of problems, including but not only the violence and the poverty? So you have these two things going on, this this power vacuum and these conversations taking place. But these are seeds, if you will. These are like the very lowest level of the foundation. Even 10 years into this, this effort, before the decision to construct the first gondola, we have one key mayor. He was a mathematics professor by trade, and he was going door to door in affected neighborhoods to personally promise, and I quote from a 2019 Newsweek piece, to let the people make the big decisions about spending on new projects. He kept his word, and during his term, he frequently solicited and followed the guidance of neighborhood councils to set, excuse me, to set spending priorities. So we have this kind of give and take right from the top. It goes beyond transportation. It's an overall philosophy integrated into outreach, into strategies, and into public spending. This wasn't just words, and if you think about it and how this kind of outreach is usually done, it's deeply respectful of people who are usually either disrespected or discounted. They're certainly not considered experts in their own realities, generally. So be aware also of how deep these problems go. Residents in the affected neighborhoods were living without basic services. So we're talking sewage and water. I mean, think Flint in, U- in terms of U.S. cities, but also without safety. Uh, again, like many in the U.S., but ne- necessarily at the same time. So we see the tendency, I would say, from a U.S. perspective, and I know we sometimes see this in other countries as well, to find one solution, right? What is one solution that's going to address these complicated layers of social issues where multiple problems overlap? Um, And Medellin took a different approach, not to impose this one solution or sort of a concentrated set of solutions, but to honestly use those neighbors, those residents as a resource. Even though they're poor, they're still intelligent and thoughtful about the conditions, the terrible conditions in which they're living every day. And that basic trust was the kernel of a comprehensive set of puzzle pieces to make up a network of solutions, if you will. And this was a big risk at its inception. That trust in a poor population uh, where gang membership was common, that's rare and fantastic in itself. So again, according to that 2019 piece in Newsweek, I quote, the obvious solution would have been to flood the neighborhoods with armed police. But through those neighborhood meetings, the people of Medellin convinced the city administration to take a different approach, alleviating the poverty, 
isolation, and lack of opportunity that led young people to seize on crime as their best pathway to success. Instead of putting more guns on the street, they decided to invest in the poor communities and treat the residents like first-class citizens, says Boyd Cohen, until recently an urban strategist and dean of research at the EDA Business School in Barcelona, Spain, and now the CEO of urban mobility app developer IAMOB. And I may be, end quote, I may be mispronouncing that. Um, what residents also began to see were, from the Smithsonian Magazine, a quote, bright orange signs and billboards all around Medellin proclaiming that violence will not return to my city. And again, from that 2008 Smithsonian Magazine article, the city government invested heavily in its poorest neighborhoods that creep up the steep Andean slopes. A comprehensive plan spearheaded by Sergio Fajardo, mayor of Medellin from 2003 to 2007, focused on keeping the peace through education and community building instead of military force. Its goal is stopping the desperation that first led many of Medellin's youth into violence, end quote. So yes, Medellin invested in the gondolas, but also in new housing for existing residents, in daycare, libraries, free computer centers, microcredit opportunities for small businesses, as well as parks and other public spaces. These spaces replace such violent, uh, such violent uh, locations as dumping grounds for bodies and turf boundaries for local gangs. There's also the question of money. And here we see Medellin really putting its money where its mouth is due to the leadership of its mayors. And I'm going to have one more sip of coffee before I tell you about another really um, amazing part of the story. Ah, loving my coffee. Okay. So it's due to the leadership of these mayors, and I will say also to its governmental structure and its culture. So if we look at the U.S., many of our cities, uh, right, are urban, progressive, diversely populated islands, and they're surrounded in states with state governments that are completely at odds with uh, what the city wants to achieve. And this oftentimes prevents those cities from being able to innovate and to uh, address problems. And I'll just give you one example. Austin, Texas, uh, this, this has been for quite a while now an insurmountable obstacle but it, it's happened in many other U.S. states as well, where the state government will pre preempt the city government from uh, taking certain approaches to social problems. So um, what I have never seen or heard about in the U.S., and what this, this episode really shows, what Medellin really illustrates, is a commitment to a comprehensive set of solutions, not the magic bullet. 
So not to one supposedly perfect or expensive measure, not to just a band-aid, and not to just like, we'll have merely more police and longer jail terms, and that'll do it. Uh, but to really address the web of issues that confront people who live in underserved neighborhoods. So we're not talking perfect peace, perfect income stability, um, but we are talking about astounding transformation. The quality of life in Medellin vastly improved. Also amazing, for, at least from an American perspective, and I would say from the perspective of democracies generally, is that the commitment to Medellin's public service, communal service approach, and certainly to um, attractive and comprehensive public transportation, has spanned multiple mayoral administrations. So these mayors, by the way, are limited to a single term. You're not talking about a mayor for life who really pushed through a whole set of projects. We're talking mayor by mayor. Um, so the first step towards the transformation may have come from one person. It may have been pushed by one mayoral administration. But the fact that, that there was... There was no counter movement from from um, later mayors or a push to reduce spending or someone whose ego required a shiny new thing instead of um, expanding upon uh, what Medellin had started. That's that's really fabulous. So before we talk about the gondola specifically, we're going to talk about what actually is a gondola. Um, and, uh, and we'll, then we'll go into the creative thinking that gave birth to selecting this mode of public transportation for Medellin. So the, the word gondola can refer to either one of two very different types of transportation. One, of course, is the famous kind of boat, the particular kind of boat uh, used in Venice. They're called gondolas. And the word originates um, with Italian. But they're also used to mean a cabin for passengers that is hung on a wire and used for transporting people up or down a mountain. So think ski resorts or tourist viewing spots. Just taking another sip of coffee here. So according to Wikipedia, there's also less well-known transportation-related definitions of for gondola, and indeed, Wikipedia refers to something like the Medellin gondolas or something similar at a ski resort. They don't refer to it as a gondola, but as a gondola lift. And if you want to wish, if you wish to explore some rabbit holes of information, there's entries in the episode notes that will assist you in that. So we will leave the gondolas of Venice, uh, those boats in the canals, for another episode. Um, but the gondolas we are talking about today uh, refer to those passenger cabins and the entire apparatus for an attached passenger cabin to ascend or descend a mountain, commonly used at ski resorts or uh, tourist viewing locations. These kind of gondolas were originally developed for mining com companies in the mid-19th century, 
And later, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, cabins were altered to allow for passenger transport. I did read that these first appeared for passenger transportation in northern Italy in Balzano in 1908, but I'm not sure whether that is accurate because I also saw late 19th century. So, around that period. The first modern use of the gondola in public transportation was not installed for a mountain, and it has never been called a gondola. As far as I know, it's not usually compared to the Medellin situation or the gondolas used uh, elsewhere. It is the Roosevelt Island Tramway in New York City, which connects Mount, uh, Manhattan to Roosevelt Island. This was... Uh, became operational in 1976 as a temporary measure. But it grew so popular that it was kept, and uh, its infrastructure, if you will, solidified. But that will be another episode. Uh, this tram, which traverses the East River, did not spark uh, a movement to expand this mode of tr public transportation. There is a gondola in Portland, Oregon, that's also used for public transportation, and it opened in the early 2000s. Um, though the idea to use gondolas comes up now and again in the U.S., um, these light bulb moments, if you will, are not usually followed by detailed plans or construction. But so, such ideas have been floated uh, somewhat recently in Austin, Texas, and also in Los Angeles, California. But when I began researching the Medellin gondolas, there was there's there's really no mention of the Roosevelt Island Tramway as sparking uh, or providing a seed for the gondolas. Rather, what is mentioned, and it's unclear how accurate uh, these reports are because there's a lack of detail, is that there was a gondola that was part of transportation, part tourism access in Caracas, Venezuela. This dates back to 1955 at Mount uh, Avila, uh, constructed on the mountain, the Hotel Humboldt, and there was a gondola to reach the hotel. And this soon, this area soon became a national park. The gondola, however, uh, fell into disrepair in the 1970s, and it was later closed for 20 years. But it did reopen in 2002, and it was immediately popular. So you can see where that might have been reported also in Colombia, and then sparked the idea for transportation up a mountain oh we could use we could use that kind of technology um so we have in south america somewhat nearby a somewhat similar example and a successful one for meeting a transportation challenge for the public that might be the key to access for uh, those living in medellin steep hillside neighborhoods and I'll have one more cup of coffee before uh, we see that this was not, you know, a slam dunk. Mm. Okay. This is my last coffee before I, I do a little vacation. So after this, I will be going to Tomoko, which is uh, 
basically on the D.C. Silver Spring, Maryland border. It's this little coffee place, and when you walk into it, it's it's like you're traveling to Ethiopia. It is a magical, tranquil place. And they didn't pay me to say that. Okay. So in terms of transportation, Medellin had significant challenges, not unique ones, but ones that have prevented other cities from committing themselves to solutions. Uh, from a Next City post in 2003, I quote, Medellin has all the transport dilemmas common to many developing world cities. Clogged arteries, potholed roads, smog from a ballooning armada of cars. But the city also faces a distinct challenge because of its geography. Situated at the heart of a valley, its sprawling shanty towns, known as barrios, have crept up the mountainsides to provide a spectacular sight for onlookers and a nightmare for city planners. The steep and narrow, helter-skelter streets that weave between the brick and cinder block houses make regular bus service to the highest points of these barrios impossible. Before the first gondola line was opened to serve the northeastern barrio of Santo Domingo, it was estimated that some residents spent up to four hours a day traveling to work in mainly informal downtown jobs. End quote. In terms of public transportation, I can tell you, personally, no one wants to be the first with a new mode, a new approach, or a significant change. Why? Because you're spending public dollars and nobody wants to be caught with a failure in terms of spending a significant amount of the public's money. Everyone wants evidence from that guinea pig project to say, oh yeah, this worked there, so it's a proven idea, whatever it is. Very few are willing to take risks with those public dollars. They may not be, you know, as in olden times, their heads cut off, their heads put on pikes for all to see, right? But you could find your head uh, photographed on the front pages of newspapers and TV, videos, whatever, right? That's that same, uh, well, not the same, but <laughs> that's humiliation, right? Nobody wants that. So when you're talking about public inve investment, nobody wants waste, nobody wants something that's unnecessary, nobody wants something to fail. So it's a big risk for those decision makers. So Medellin may have been using something that looked possible, but it was basically the first, and it was the first, uh, certainly for its continent, to use gondolas in, the, um, in public transportation, and certainly the first to use gondolas in the context of transportation for mountainous areas uh, as public transportation, and certainly the first for addressing the transportation needs of people who lived in violence-infested, murder-infested neighborhoods. This was a huge risk. But instead of starting with an expensive mode, they start with this inexpensive mode for addressing this problem. Gondolas are actually pretty cheap as far as, far as public transportation infrastructure goes. But it is suited to the geography, 
and it would de deliver the needed transportation. So let's go to Santo Domingo, that, uh, that barrio, that neighborhood that was the site for the first uh, gondola line. It's 2003, so it's 10 years after uh, Pablo Escobar was killed. There's still violence. There's still recruitment of gang members. There's private transportation that takes two, maybe even sometimes two and a half hours to take someone into the central city. Uh, there's all sorts of problems, right? Public infrastructure problems. Conditions are terrible. The gondolas are mentioned. The idea is laughed off. No one believes this is going to happen. And I quote from uh, a website called The Gondola Project. It has a book's worth of information about the Medellin gondolas and, and about gondolas all over. It's really an incredible uh, website. And I will quote in just a second. Okay. After four years of community development around the idea and one potential supplier dropping out during... Uh, due to security concerns, the Colombian and Medellin governments ponied up $26 million in U.S. dollars, a huge sum for those governments, and allowed Metro Medellin to build the world's first metro cable. To say the least, the results were surprising. Even before the system opened, systemic change was witnessed. Contractors who had grown accustomed to their building supplies being stolen at night experienced no such thing. When such an incident did happen, the locals were more than happy to rat out the perpetrators. For once in their lives, the residents of Santo Domingo saw their government doing something for them rather than to them, and Santo Domingo wanted to return the favor." End quote. So there's a huge cultural shift taking place alongside this community outreach and this uh, very beginning of building of infrastructure. This is truly a nothing about us without us approach. And understanding social issues as interconnected web-like problems and also associated with respect for and dialogue with people who live in a particular place. So the first line of this metro cable uh, system, the, the gondolas are called metro cable, and I might be mispronouncing that. So the first line, Linea K, opened in 2004. It was a two-kilometer line, so about 1.2 miles. It serves the neighborhoods going up this uh, particular part of the mountain all the way to the barrio of Santo Domingo. Excuse me. And from its inception, it was integrated into the existing public transportation system. So at the bottom, easy to make that connection. The gondola was an instant triumph. Crime virtually disappeared in Santo Domingo. And because success uh, likes success and likes to copy it, private investment in the neighborhood increased. At rush hour, people will still line up for as long as 45 minutes to board the gondolas. The metro cable lines are managed as part of Medellin's public transportation system, and as of 2019, according to Wikipedia, annual ridership was 19 million. 
Uh, this is a great case study for anyone considering a public transportation project, and I mean that on so many levels. And certainly also a case study for how do you uh, affect social change. So now that the first line was an instant hit, Medellin has followed up with four more gondola lines as part of what it calls this metro cable system. So the lines beyond that first linear K, let's talk just a little bit about them. Uh, the second metro cable gondola line was Linea J, which opened in 2008. It was planned and constructed in a less densely populated area, also up mountainous terrain, and in conjunction with Transit-Oriented Development, TOD. It is not as crowded as uh, Linea K, and the fanfare and dramatic results were not on the same scale as that first line probably because the problems and the density weren't on the same scale. Uh, Linea L came next, and it is not a line for uh, regular passenger transportation for commuting, but rather it's um, a line for outings and for tourists. It goes up to a national park, and unlike its sibling gondola lines, there is a separate fare for this one uh, because it is more of a, a special occasion or tourism uh, line. Linea H opened in 2016, Linea M opened in 2019, and Linea P only began operation in January of 2021. And we have uh, a nice epilogue here. Other qu countries quickly got on the bandwagon. Look how successful that was. That could work here. Uh, interestingly, though, these countries are all in Central and South America, uh, perhaps because of the kind of topography uh, that a gondola can address and uh, common social issues. I don't know, because there's certainly other places with mountainsides and rivers, right, where you can use a gondola. So there are now gondola lines in Caracas, Venezuela, La Paz, Bolivia, and one near Mexico City. In Colombia, three other cities have built gondola operations. Uh, but as we know from the Roosevelt Tramway in New York, which goes over a river, there's no mountain anywhere nearby, a gondola can be an alternative to a ferry or even a bridge for public transportation. So it's a flexible approach. So the years have amply demonstrated the success of the Medellin gondolas from the perspectives of social progress, equity, and confronting uh, violence. And this uh, quote is from a Seeds of Good Anthropocene's blog post. That's a mouthful. <laughs> and I quote, A study that examined the effects of cable cars' construction on neighborhood violence showed that the decline in the murder rate was 66% greater in neighborhoods with access to cable cars than in similar neighborhoods. Furthermore, the carbon emissions of the cable cars were relatively low compared to other modes of transport, and they generated relatively low levels of local air pollution. More recently, the metro cable system has become a tourist attraction within Medellin as it provides great views and easy accessibility to parks as well as other parts of the city." End quote. 
I should add that Medellin also has a fully integrated public transport transportation system that the gondolas plug into, and these include this includes, and I should say it goes beyond public transportation. I should say a publicly transport publicly available transportation, if you will network because it goes beyond public transportation modes. So these include bus rapid transit and bike lanes, both separated from other traffic. Um, there's also a metro subway. There are in some places escalators instead of steep sidewalks or stairs that allow ones to go up uh, hillside areas. And there is a tramway uh, which is a light rail network. Not to be confused with that Roosevelt Island tramway. Tramway refers to light rail. Okay, so we have a clean, well-maintained public transportation network. And I think we're going to have to do more episodes because uh, Medellin really treats its public transportation modes um, and infrastructure as something special, uh, something to be well-maintained, um, and something they, they treasure. You know, it's really impressive. Uh, before we close, let's also focus in on that word network. Um, in Medellin, nobody is slapping themselves on the back for one subway line that's been planned. Um, or one, you know, mode that's been wanted for 80 years. Or for one BRT line where it's not rapid at all and it only links to a few other buses that have terrible service. They have really created a multimodal network that functions well. And that's really astounding in itself and the fact that it's done it in conjunction with those other uh, public services is truly impressive. So here we have a much poorer nation than the U.S. in a city that had awful problems for a long time where many people were dying and living in abject poverty. And in less than a generation, they provide equitable and quality public transportation along with other public social services. It's a great story. Thank you so much for listening today. Again, I'm your host, Cheryl Gross Glazer. From us at Alter Mobility to you, it has been a pleasure. Contribute your thoughts on social media. We will meet again soon, but not too soon, uh, because I am taking a vacation. And so there will be uh, a season two. This will end season one. Thank you very much. May you stay in good health. Enjoy your coffee, tea, water, juice, whatever you're drinking. And I will meet you again soon.
Come on, 